Now it's my pleasure to introduce Robert Frere, Senior Pastor of New Hope Fellowship in Tarrytown. You may wonder if he's on vacation, but they meet like our own manor church in the afternoons in some other church. They've not chosen to go for church building just yet. And they're a live church, maybe a little bit bigger than us, and we're looking forward to Rob's ministry with us, preaching on Psalm 73 today. And the children of his mystery, Judea Church. Here Barbara's going to Thank you, brother. Good morning, CBC. It really is. It's a blessing and a privilege to, to be here with you today, to sing with you, to worship the Lord with you. Um, it's my first time in this building and, and with you as a church, and I count it a, a, real, a real privilege. Um, the church where I serve, uh, New Hope Fellowship, we have prayed for you just recently, and we will continue to pray for you. We commit to do that as you go through the season of transition as a church. We're grateful for, uh, even though we're only now getting to know each other, and I've just only met uh, Peter and some others here at the church, um, we thank the Lord for the fact that we serve in the, we serve the same kingdom, and, um, and we are in a very real way, and I hope that that becomes more evident in, in, in the months ahead, we are in gospel partnership together by God's grace. And so we thank the Lord for you. Um, I'm going to invite you to pray with me as we jump into Psalm 73. Let's pray. Our Father, you've told us that... Uh, if we are your people, then we will abide in your truth, and your truth will set us free. And so as we seek to abide in your truth this morning, we ask that you would, in fact, set us free, change our perspectives where they need to be changed. What we don't know, Lord, teach us, and what we don't have yet, give to us. Lord, what we need to hear, please tell us. What we've forgotten, remind us of, Lord. We submit ourselves to you and to the guidance of your Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, acceptable to you. You are a rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it to Psalm 73. I believe we're going to be projecting these verses up here, but just in case we don't, and even if we do, you'll find it very helpful to be able to look at the psalm as we walk through it. Um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but whatever English translation or other translation that you have, I'm sure you'll find to be very helpful. Um, Psalm 73, and I'm going to read verse 25. Just verse 25 right now. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And what a declaration of love and, and singular devotion to God. He says, You're all I have and you're all I want. These are the words of a man named Asaph. He's a man who knew that God is good. He was certain that God is good. But when we read the rest of the psalm, we find out that he was not always so sure. We find out that in the past, his faith was threatened. And, and he found himself wondering, is God really good? Is God worth trusting? Is he worth obeying? In a sense, he found himself asking, is God worth it? Which is a question we're asking this morning. It's the question that this psalm drives us to ask. Honestly and thoughtfully, 
Let's not assume we already know the answer to that question. Is God worth it? In other words, does following God really pay off? Or is it a waste of my life? Would I be better off finding something else to pursue and dedicate my life to? I wonder if any of you have ever asked questions like that. I wonder if, even if you're a follower of Jesus, do you ever have doubts about him? If so, then you're in good company. You're in company with Asaph. And he wrote part of the Bible, so that's a pretty high standard. If you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, is it because you're not sure that he's worth it? That he deserves your trust? Do you ever wonder, is God worth it? This writer did, and he didn't ignore those questions. He didn't ignore those doubts. He engaged them head on, confronted them. And it's through this process of honestly wrestling with that question that he finally concluded, yes, God is worth it. In fact, he concluded that no other pursuit, no other person or purpose compares to him. Nothing else deserves my lifelong devotion and trust. That's where this man landed, but we need to see how he got there. And we need to honestly ask this question with him, is God worth it? And you know, you know, this is actually the perfect place for us to ask that question. In the gathering of the church, for the purpose of worship, this is the perfect place to ask that question. And we're going to see why in just a little bit. So over the course of this psalm, the psalmist goes through a few phases, and those phases are going to serve as the headings of this message, okay? He goes from step one, comparing and complaining, that's where he begins, and then he goes on to regret and rethink, and then lastly, he realizes and repents. So let's start at the beginning, and let's walk through this psalm. Comparing and complaining is where the psalmist begins. Look at verse one. Actually, there's another uh, uh, a declaration of, of confident belief in God. He says, truly God is good to Israel, those who are pure in heart. In other words, God is good to his people. But again, there was a point when the author wondered if that was really true. And so he tells us the story, his story. Starts in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Imagine hiking a trail and nearly slipping off the edge. Off the edge of that cliff, that's how the psalmist describes his experience. He, he almost slipped off the edge. He almost lost his faith and fell into total unbelief. He says, why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Hmm. You see, he started comparing his life to others, and he began to envy what he saw. And what did he see? It was the prosperity of the wicked. That, that, that Hebrew word there, prosperity, that, that's an important word. The word there is actually shalom. Shalom. Like I said, it's an important word. Often in the Bible, you probably know this, often in the Bible it's translated as peace. But here it's prosperity. Now peace and prosperity, both those words capture something of the meaning of shalom, but shalom is a rich word. And, and we're culturally, many of us at least, are culturally distant and historically distant from the origins of that word. It's hard for us to wrap our head around exactly what it means, but it has to do with prosperity. It also has to do with peace. It also has to do with the idea of completeness, the idea of wholeness. Shalom means, in one sense, to be well in every possible way. 
And so the psalmist is looking at people who ignore God. He's looking at people who, who reject God. He calls them, quote, unquote, the wicked. They, they dismiss God's commandments. As we read the description of them, they are ruthless people. They are self-promoting people. And the psalmist says, when I look at them, I notice that their lives are full. They are prospering. He says, they have shalom. And in the following verses, he says, he, he describes what that looks like. He says, they live pain-free lives. They don't struggle. Pain-free lives. They're well-fed. The New International Version, I think, in verse 4, says that they are, they are uh, healthy and strong in body or something like that. My translation says they are fat. And fat, by the way, was a compliment in ancient times. Maybe it's not so much of a compliment nowadays. Maybe that's why the New International Version decided to go in a different direction. But fat was a compliment. And if most folks are hungry in your society and have little food, then if you're eating well, then you're very fortunate, aren't you? So he's saying these people are full. Their lives are trouble-free. They have everything. And look, look, rather than, than, than allow this to make them more grateful, it's only made them more arrogant and abusive. Verse 6. He says, therefore, their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. In other words, they flaunt their sin like jewelry, like, like a celebrity on a red carpet flaunts their fit. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. They loftily, they threaten oppression. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. That's how my translation puts it. The New International Version, I was just looking at as I sat there that they, they, they make claim on heaven or something like that. They make claim, and, and both are true. In one sense, they speak out against heaven. In another sense, they speak as if they rule heaven. They walk and talk with arrogant swagger. That, that's the, the image of the unjust, self-seeking, self-consumed people that, that the psalmist is thinking about. And, and this image has actually consumed his mind. As he looks around, he could probably think of names. He, he probably had some specific people in mind. Real examples. And maybe you can think of some too. Maybe they're people that you know, or maybe they're just people that you know of via media, via your news feed. But I wonder, do you ever compare your lives to theirs? Like the psalmist did. Comparison can be dangerous. No? <laughs> so often it leads to envy and, and eventually to what the Bible calls coveting perhaps even further than that. But notice two other things that comparing can do here. Notice what comparing did to this man. First, it exaggerated how... When we start comparing, we are in danger of exaggerating how good other people have it. Here's what I mean. He says, they're living pain-free lives. They have no disappointments. They have no problems. Really? Is that true? The fact is that life those who reject God is never really as attractive as their lifestyle may seem to indicate. And frankly, it's true of anyone we look at. No matter how good they seem to have it, their lives are probably much more difficult than we realize. But from the outside, it can be deceiving. Comparing tends to exaggerate that. The other thing that comparing tends to do is it warps your perspective on what really matters. What is of, of, of real importance? For instance, look at what the psalmist is envying. He, he, he says it in verse 12. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, 
they increase in riches. So he's basically he's saying they're, they're, they, they have comfort and they have wealth. Now, Asaph, being a wise man, at other times in his life, would have probably said, wealth and comfort are not what life is about. It's not really what's important. But now, as he's focused on the lives of others and, and continues to, 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 to gaze at what others have, and he goes into this mode of comparing himself to them, now he started to long for things that he thought were once unimportant. Can you relate to that? I have visited places where I will never afford to live. And as I looked around, and what I cared about started to change. What, what I mean is I, I, see, I see people's cars, and I see their houses, and I see their, their, their lives. And, and those material things didn't matter so much to me before until I started to gaze at them and compare my life to theirs and now all of a sudden i started thinking why, why do these folks have all this how about how about us how about me i want some of that i've often thought that in in the, no i guess people people don't shop in in shopping malls as much as they used to i suppose people shop online but i remember even as a young man uh going to the mall and coming home and thinking, I didn't realize how many things I needed until I went to the mall and looked around. And now I realize how many things I need. And now I want a whole mess of new stuff. Comparison is dangerous. And you see why. You can see why the psalmist says, my feet almost slipped. We almost slipped because we easily stumble from comparison into evil uh, uh, complaining and envy. And it, it can happen quickly. It can happen in, in as little time as it takes to scroll through someone's social media feed and you begin to see their their perfect family and their perfect vacation that you wish you could have taken and you see their perfect bodies and their perfect uh homes and 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 you start to think why them why not me i read recently about a study by the king's university that that uh came to the amazing discovery that watching HGTV, are you familiar with HGTV? Watching HGTV TV leads to heightened um, levels of sadness and even depression. Surprising, no? Maybe not. <laughs> the psalmist goes from comparing, complaining anyway, further. He goes into a, a time of regretting and rethinking. <laughs> Here, here's what I mean. In verse 13, he says, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Comparison can cause you to regret the choices you've made and to start rethinking your life. Because perhaps you look at your friend who has what you want. Maybe you want to be married but are not and, and your friend is. Or maybe you want a happier marriage and you don't have one but your friend does. Or maybe your friend has just been more successful than you. His career has skyrocketed while yours has stagnated. Maybe your friend's just more liked than you are. Or you see a stranger even on social media or somewhere else who looks happier or wealthier than you, and you begin to think, maybe, maybe I should have made some different choices in life. <laughs> maybe my life could have been better if I had made some different decisions. What was I thinking? And in this case, this man for him comparing has led him to question his very commitment to god he's wondering what's the point of trusting and obeying 
God if my life isn't even as good as, as those of people who ignore him? Maybe it's been a mistake to follow him. But, but lastly, this man reaches a turning point. He begins to realize and repent. Look, look at what it says here. It, 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 he, he reaches this turning point. He begins to realize that his thinking is all wrong, and he repents. And what I mean by that is that he turns around. He changes his mind, changes his way of thinking. He was way off until verse 17. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Notice this moment of realization. And notice that in this moment of realization, his circumstances had not changed. But his focus changed. In a part, his eyes turned away from the temporary and toward eternal. He says, I saw their end. I, I saw the end of their story. And I thought about the end of my story. He stopped looking at just the present experience of the people that he envied, and he looked at where they were headed, and he finally saw that what he was envying was not, in fact, shalom. And it's certainly true that some folks who ignore and reject God acquire influence and money and comfort. But the psalmist says to the Lord, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. That, that's a callback to verse 2, if you notice. It echoes verse 2. But here, he's not the one slipping anymore. His, he's gotten his foothold, and he realizes they're the ones who are actually on the precipice, about to tumble to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them. As phantoms, I, I, I realize now, he says, that no matter what present abundance anyone enjoys, no matter what present abundance life in Westchester County or any other part of the world can offer you, everyone who rejects God will ultimately experience destruction. And, and what makes their lives enviable will disappear. Like a dream in the morning, he says. Ever, ever have a dream that you're enjoying, but as soon as you wake up, it starts to slip away and you can't recall it? You're trying to recall it and you feel like you almost can, but it, it, it flies away. Swept away and gone. So he says, is the counterfeit shalom that I have spent so much time envying. This means, for one thing, that there will be justice in this world. Genesis 18 asks, will not the judge of the earth do what is just? And the psalmist finally realized that the answer is a resounding yes. There's a reason that Psalm 37 says, don't envy the wicked, for they will soon fade. And this realization has led this man to repent, to change his thinking, to change his direction. He says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was, I was brutish and ignorant. I was, I was like a beast towards you, he says. In other words, I, as I looked around at others and I looked at my own life, I got discouraged and I became resentful because of what I saw. And, and I responded like an idiot, Lord, I was dumb. Until I entered your sanctuary and I came to my senses. And I want to invite us to think about what it means when he says, I entered your sanctuary. 
the sanctuary of the Lord. I mentioned at the outset that, uh, that this worship service, this gathering of the church, is the perfect place to ask the question, is God worth it? And here's why. Because it was in the very process of worship that the psalmist came to his senses. The, the sanctuary of God was the place of God's presence for ancient Israel. At, at the time when this psalm was written, it would have been the tabernacle. The temple was not yet there. So for Asaph, there was a, a tent of gathering, a holy place. And in the holiest part of that holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. There were two tablets. The law of God etched on those two tablets. There was an altar of sacrifice where animal offerings were made to the Lord. There was a mercy seat where the blood of animals was sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement. And basically all of these things, everything in that holiest part of that holy tabernacle, all of those things were signs of God's covenant love, of God's covenant promises really, and also God's covenant curses. You see, in the, in the center of that sanctuary of God, in that tabernacle, Asaph would find reminders of God's law and of God's grace. The law reminds us that we are wicked and that none of us is pure in heart. Sure, Asaph had labeled others wicked. He had begun to envy the wicked. When he goes into the sanctuary, the definition of wicked begins to change, and perhaps he begins to look at himself and say, I'm not so pure in heart after all. Maybe I am counted amongst the quote-unquote wicked. But, but God forgives. God cleanses. God welcomes. This is what that mercy seat, that altar reminded him of. Yes, we have sin, and sin requires atonement, but God atones. God forgives. God cleanses. This is all of some of what Asaph encountered when he went into the sanctuary. Some people believe that Asaph was actually a priest. He certainly came from a lineage, a family of priests. And if he was a priest, then he had occasion to enter into that holiest of holy places at least once a year. For us, as New Testament believers, there's no physical tabernacle or temple, is there? But we do gather to hear God's word, to read, to sing of God's covenant promises to each other as we've done today. You see, there is still, there still remains a sanctuary. There still remains a sanctuary. And I'm not talking about this building, as beautiful as this building is. I'm talking about the gathering of God's people, where Jesus is present by his spirit. This is the sanctuary. When you approach Jesus in prayer, when you approach God in prayer, you're in the sanctuary. And when we do it together, something, something of what Asaph experienced, we experience here. As, as uh, Peter mentioned, our church doesn't have a building. We still have a sanctuary. Every time we get together, every time, we hear and read and sing of God's covenant promises, and he promises to be here with us, present with us. His, his presence makes the gathering a sanctuary, a holy place 
where we don't offer blood sacrifices anymore, but we do celebrate the once for all blood sacrifice of Jesus that atoned once for all for the sins of everyone who believes in him. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember his body offered up, his blood spilled to forgive and cleanse us from our sin, and he promises his presence with us in that ordinance, in the gathering. You see, worship, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about gathered worship here, but really, whenever we worship the Lord in any sense, but I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on gathered worship. Gathered worship is where we encounter God's presence together. It's where we are together reminded of who he is Gathered worship is where we are together reminded that Christ died in our place to atone for our sin, our failures. We're reminded in the sanctuary of gathered worship that we don't deserve any of what we have any more than the quote-unquote wicked do. We're not entitled. It's all grace after all. It's all gift. Gathered worship is where we're confronted with reality. As we hear and read and sing about the love and the mercy and the glory of Jesus, that God himself, who took the form of a man, who suffered injustice, who suffered pain, who suffered poverty and the loss of everything for us. And then he rose again. Gathered worship is where we can bring our doubts. If you have doubts, what do you do with them? What are you doing with your doubts? If you begin to wonder at times if God really is worth it, have you made a mistake by following him? Is, is, is this going to pay off? <laughs> Where do you bring those doubts and questions? I encourage you to bring them to the gathering. You ever walk into worship discouraged and, and, and questioning and, and walk out reassured? I sure have. Gathered worship is where together our minds are renewed and our doubts are settled. It's where together we remember and we declare with one voice that God is worth it. In the sanctuary, this man was confronted with the infinite value and worth of knowing God personally. Verse 23, he says, I'm, I'm with you. You hold my hand. So, so even, even as I suffer, and I will suffer, and it hurts, you guide me. And when I die, he says, you will take me. You will receive me. He says in verse 26, you are my portion forever. You see, when he was comparing and complaining, it's interesting. If you look at the comparing and complaining section, he, he names all the many things that others have that he wanted. But now he doesn't name any things that God has given him. He doesn't say, Lord, thank you for my family and my home and my health. And he could have perhaps thanked God for all those things. But instead, he just keeps saying, I've got you. Look at how many times you, 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 you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you found yourself asking, is God worth it? Know this. What you have in Jesus is real and worth more than all the world. And it is permanent. It is permanent. For behold, verse 27 says, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. If you haven't yet come to trust and follow this God, please consider carefully the observations of this psalmist. We are constantly being told what is valuable. We're constantly being told what shalom looks like. But if the, the good 
the shalom, the completeness, the wholeness, the peace, the prosperity that you are chasing and banking on, if it's temporary, then you're being misled. Jesus once said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? It's not worth it. But what God offers you is lasting. And if you trust him, there will be suffering, there will be doubts, no doubt along the way. But finally, you will testify like the psalmist, it was all worth it. He is worth it. Let, let's end this verse. Let's end this with the verse that we started with in verse 25 says there whom have i in heaven but you but there is nothing on earth that i desire besides you i wonder maybe that verse is a little bit more meaningful now that we've seen the struggle that it took the psalmist to get there notice what he says there he says it's not just god is it's not that god isn't just better than what this world has to offer he's saying you're the best of what heaven has to offer See, when we think about heaven, I don't know what you think of when, we think, when, when you think about heaven. I often think about many, I think, an end of pain. No more suffering. No more injustice. No more sin. Oh, the blessedness of what heaven has in store for God's people. But he says, when I list all of what heaven has in store, I can't think of anything better than this. You. You are the best of what heaven has to offer no wonder Psalm 16 says, in his presence there is fullness of joy. He is the source of real, lasting shalom. And this raises a final question for us that we'll close with. And I think it's a question that the psalmist had to wrestle with. What is it that you really want from God? Is it him, or is it the things that he can give you if he chooses to? Is he what you are after? His love his acceptance, his presence. If that's what you're after, I got good news for you. That, he promises you all that in Christ. You have that in Jesus, and no one can take it away. But if you're after something else, like the wealth or influence or approval from others, that he can give you if he wants to, and so many people spend their lives chasing those things, what's going to happen if he says No. What if he says, I'm going to withhold that wealth? I'm going to withhold health from you. I'm going to withhold the approval of others. What if God says no? Will he still be worth it? Asaph had to be honest with himself. And I think we should be honest with ourselves too. The crazy reality is that it's better to be homeless with God than wealthy without him. You can ask Joseph about that. It's better to be disrespected and rejected with God than to be honored and accepted without him. You can ask Jesus about that. It's even better to be laid off with God than be promoted without him. Or be sick with God than to be fit and healthy without him. This is true, but we lose our, our perspective, don't we? Especially when we begin to look at others and compare as we gaze at the, the phony and the fleeting. The antidote to all that is worship. The antidote to being lured away by the phony and the fleeting is a sustained focus on God, who he is and what he's promised in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The antidote to dissatisfaction and envy and doubt is in the sanctuary where you see what is true and timeless, what is shalom. Let's pray.